Jesus Christ is the most valuable treasure that could ever be discovered or obtained by men. And in fact, it's not so much that we discover Him. Rather, it's that He is revealed to us. God sent Him into this world to show us His glory, to display the fullness of grace and truth. And it's not so much that we obtain Jesus, it's that He died on the cross to purchase us and to redeem us. And so though though we call Him our Savior and our Lord, He calls us His own with His shed blood there on the hill of Calvary. Jesus Christ, dying for our sins, buried in the tomb, and risen again on the third day, is the means by which we have any relationship with God. I want to talk to you today on the subject, Access Granted. Access Granted by, through Jesus Christ, to God the Father in heaven. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 through 54, we read the account of Jesus dying on the cross. We see his last few moments alive in human flesh upon the earth. And really, I think we see in Matthew's account of Jesus' death the means by which we have been granted access to God the Father, to heaven, to the new kingdom. Last week, I talked with you on Easter morning about the thief on the cross who asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom. And Jesus answered him with a promise, Today, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. This week, I'm going to talk to you about how that's possible. I mean, I would think... And maybe I'm wrong, but I would think that most of you know that Jesus died on a cross, right? I would think that most of you know that Jesus was buried in a tomb and spent three days there, right? And most of you would say and know that he came up out of his tomb, came to new life. Those are the facts of the gospel. But what does the gospel itself produce? What does it create? How By Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, do we obtain access to God? Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 through 54. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened. And said, truly this was the Son of God. An interesting account of Jesus' death. Before this, Matthew went through the details of Jesus' suffering there as he's being executed upon 
the Roman cross. But Matthew also includes some details surrounding Jesus' death. Things that happened at the temple, things that happened in the graveyard, and also things that happened there in the hearts of other people on that very hill as they watched Jesus die. And it's in these three events surrounding Jesus' death that we really see how we've obtained access, how we've been granted the privilege of having a relationship with God. The first point of access is that because of Jesus' death, because of his sacrifice for our sins on the cross, we have access to God through prayer. We have access to God through prayer. You'll notice in verse 51 something interesting happened when Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Verse 51 says that the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Some of your translations might say curtain. This was a very impressive veil or curtain. This was long and this was thick. It was a curtain that stretched in the temple from the ceiling all the way to the floor. You see, in the temple there in Jerusalem, there were two major rooms inside the temple itself. The temple was known as the holy place because the Jews believed that's where God's presence dwelled in their midst. And in this holy place, there was a holy room where the priest would enter in and there he would offer up incense or lay out bread on the table or even light the lamp on the golden lampstand. But then beyond that holy room inside this temple was the holy of holies or the most holy place. It was divided from the room before it by a very thick curtain. Scarlet and blue material mixed together to, to make a beautiful purple color. Seraphim decorated this curtain. And this curtain was there to separate the presence of God from the priests who came into the holy room to serve. It was only once a year that any person was allowed access into this most holy place, this holy of holies. The priest would take blood from the sacrifice that had been offered outside of the temple and within the courtyard. He would then bring this blood on the Day of Atonement in through the Holy Room and to the Holy of Holies. And as the curtain was opened, he would go in and the veil would be closed. He would go before God. And the only piece of furniture in this most holy place, in this Holy of Holies room, was the Ark of the Covenant. Some of you have seen Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Last Ark, right? Might not have looked exactly like that, but get some kind of picture like that in your mind. A chest made out of wood, plated with gold, a top of solid gold, and two angelic hosts of heaven represented as bowing inward over the mercy seat with their wings extended and their heads bowed in reverence to the one true God. And there, on the Ark of the Covenant, the priest would take the blood from the sacrifice and sprinkle 
seven drops of blood on top of the mercy seat. There, the Ark of the Covenant. Praying and asking God to forgive the sins of the people. The blood of the sacrifice had been shed and it had been offered to God on the altar. But now the priest was bringing before God this blood that was meant to atone for the people's sins. And every year and once a year they would repeat this religious ritual, this spiritual practice. And the priest would hopefully go in and come out. I mean, this was kind of scary business. He was taking the sins of the nation before God with the sacrifice of an animal. And he was asking God in his mercy to forgive the people. Other than that one fellow, nobody was allowed access into the holy of holies, the most holy place, this mercy seat where the presence of God dwelled. And the curtain, the veil, is what divided the two. Veils are, are meant to cover, to hide things. You think of the practice of a bride walking down the aisle on her wedding day. They don't always do this in our day and time, but still, oftentimes, they'll have this nice, pretty, white piece of maybe tulle or silk and some other mixtures of fabric to kind of hide the bride's face. And when she comes down there to the altar to see the groom, the veil is pulled back. She can see him. He can see her. They go through the wedding ceremony, and it's wonderful. Curtains are meant to cover things up, right? I mean, you think of the heat that's coming. Feels nice outside today, doesn't it? Just imagine when we wake up in July and August and the sunshine comes through the window. And we're going, oh. We put up curtains in our house to block out the light, to block out the heat. This veil and this curtain was put in the temple. Not just to keep people from getting into the Holy of Holies and doing dishonor to God. It was also to really keep the wrath and the anger of God over sin at bay. We're talking about a holy God who had come to live in the midst of his people and to be worshipped there at the temple. It was almost for the people's protection that that veil was there. And it wasn't that the people were hiding their sin from God. It's that God knew the evil that was in their hearts and the wickedness that dwelled within their souls. And so he created this point of separation, this veil, this curtain. But when Jesus died that day, this curtain, this veil was torn in two. I imagine that every priest there that day got to catch a glimpse and a peek at what they had longed to see, the ark. But they were probably still scared to look inside. Are we supposed to do that? This has never happened before. I mean, this curtain was so thick that you couldn't really tear it apart with your hands. I mean, Clark Kent would even have a hard time ripping it apart to display a Superman shirt if he was wearing it. It was thick. It was made not to be divided, not to be torn, not to be cut. But yet, the Greek verb rent communicates that it was just shredded like a piece of paper. And it wasn't just torn in two by a man. 
this curtain went all the way up to the ceiling. And it was torn from top to bottom. A symbol that something other than a human being had torn it. What happened the day Jesus died is that he granted us access to God. He granted us access to God through prayer. Think about it. The high priest once a year, one day a year, could go in and there sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the top of the Ark of the Covenant and pray to God and ask for the forgiveness of sins. But when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, he provided the way for us all to have access to God, not just one day of the year, and not just for one person, but for us all. Now this is incredible to think about, is it not? This means, because of Jesus' sacrifice, that now we can go to God in His very throne room in heaven and make our requests known. We can confess our sins. We can ask for His wisdom. We can ask for direction and guidance. We can speak to Him and He can speak to us. The way for relationship is now opened. It's a beautiful picture. The veil of the temple torn in two from top to bottom. It shows us that we now have access to God through prayer. Unless you think this is kind of a mediocre benefit to the Christian life. Let's think about this concept of prayer. You want to? The God of all of the universe that made everything, everyone and everything has now given you a direct line to speak with Him all of the time. Whenever you have a need, whenever you need to hear His voice, whenever you have a question, whenever you want to praise Him or worship Him or tell Him thank you, you now have the opportunity to speak with Him and He with you. This is a glorious glorious privilege for every Christian believer that we can talk with God in prayer. He hears us. He longs to listen to us. He longs for us to speak with Him. And it's through Jesus' sacrifice that this privilege of prayer is made possible. You see, here's what would happen the, the high priest, when he made this sacrifice on the altar and would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, was really going through a, a practice, a ceremony that was meant to picture the sacrifice of Jesus that was one day coming. But the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats and all those animals could never really atone for the sins of mankind. But when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was torn in two. The divide, the separation, the barrier was no longer there. The way had been opened, not by any human being, but by the very Son of God, Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we now have access to God through prayer. And here's why this is so very important. How did you begin a relationship with God? Not a hard question, shouldn't be anyways. Not a trick question. What's, what's the very first thing you did 
when you wanted to begin a relationship with God. You prayed. You might not have had fancy words to say. You might have said it out loud. You might have written it down. You might have prayed it in your heart to the Lord because you were embarrassed. But the very first thing you did when you wanted to come to know God is you called out to Him in some way, shape, or form. That's just a fancy way to say you prayed. You talked to Him. Did you know without Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that would have been impossible for you to do? But because of His sacrifice, the way is open. You now have access to God through prayer. And not just access one time, but access continually to speak with Him all the time. But that's not the only thing that happened the day Jesus died. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, but the end of verse 51 says this, The earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now this would have been something interesting to see that day too, would it not? At tombs in this day and time were often stacks or piles of rocks on top of people's corpses. Or, like Jesus, if if you were wealthy or your family was wealthy, they were caves, either man-made or natural, where stones were put in front of or just left open and the dead were buried there. Sometimes people would have been buried in a rock, kind of like our typical headstone monument would have been placed, upon that grave to mark it. But regardless of how people were buried, they were all dead. They were in their cemeteries, they were in their tombs, they were in their graves. In fact, it was a common practice, kind of like we have in our day and time, to designate an area where the dead could be buried. Cemeteries, graveyards, memorial parks or gardens, we have all kinds of words for them. But the idea here is that that day in the cemeteries, the tombs didn't stay closed. All of a sudden, you'd start to see an arm poke up through a pile of rocks and somebody walk up out of it. Or stones rolled out in front of the doorway of an entrance to a tomb and lo and behold, there comes grandma. Would this not be astounding and very bizarre to all that witnessed it? Couldn't you see someone coming maybe to bring flowers to put on a loved one's grave? And they look around and they go, what in the world is happening? And all of a sudden, the very flowers that they're holding to lay there are taken hold of by something coming up out of their tomb. This is what happened that day. A lot of times people pass over it But I don't think it's something that we should pass over. It's a miraculous event. And keep in mind that it's this day when Jesus died that the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were open. It wasn't after Jesus' resurrection that these people appeared. It was the very moment in which he died. Now after Jesus resurrected, verse 53 tells us that those people who had also been raised started to go into the city and bear witness to Jesus' resurrection. But I imagine that was a strange three-day family reunion in the cemetery for a lot of families. I think you do too. You realize the extraordinary nature of these people coming back to life. It shows us the second access point that we have. 
We don't just have access to God through prayer, but we have access to life after death. There's been a lot of uh, debate, a lot of different surveys that have been made about the greatest fears of human beings. Um, A lot of times, the top two in the surveys that I've seen is that people are scared of snakes and people are scared of public speaking. If you don't believe that's true, just somebody come up here and finish the sermon for me, right? So people are scared of those things. But I really believe that the number one fear of every person, whether they like to admit it or not, is the thing that we cannot conquer no matter how hard we try. It's death. We don't like to think about it. We say we're ready for it. We can plan and prepare. But really, is there anybody in here that's just going, Jake, I'd I'd like to die today. We don't want to do that. We We don't want to experience death. We're scared of it. We fear. We have doubts. We have questions. We have concerns. We have confusion. But in this resurrection of these saints from the tombs, what we find is that because of Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross, we have access to life after death. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Please think about this for a moment. We, as finite creatures, have lungs that are meant to take in air and breathe out air. This process of breathing keeps us alive. We have hearts. Not just the little hearts that you draw on Valentine's Day, talk about how much you love your boyfriends and girlfriends, but the blood pumping muscle within your chest. It causes blood to flow and circulate throughout your body. And as your heart beats, your life continues to go on. We have minds, brains, that are meant to make us function in this world. We receive information, we process information, we act upon information. But what happens is this, when a person dies, the lungs stop taking in oxygen and they stop breathing out as well. The heart stops beating, the mind stops functioning. We even have a way to measure brain waves these days. A dead person can do none of those things. They cannot live. That's why we're scared of death. But when Jesus died on the cross for us, he conquered the number one enemy of humankind. Death itself. People all of a sudden are coming up out of their graves and everybody's looking around going, how in the world is this possible? And we know how it's possible. The reason death exists is because of a thing called sin. Anybody confused about sin? Really short, simple word, but it's got I in the middle of it. It means you do whatever you want to do, and you don't care if you disobey God or hurt other people in the process. And we've all committed sin in some way, shape, or form. And it's because of this sin that death was ushered into the world. Adam and Eve were planted in a garden as innocent creatures where there was life all around them. God told them that they could eat from any tree in the garden, in fact, even the tree of life, so that they could live forever. But he told them that they could not eat from one tree. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
Because Adam and Eve sinned that day, we all inherited a sin nature. And what we find in the New Testament is this, that the wages or the punishment or the paycheck for sin is death. We all die. We've all sinned. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross, He took the punishment and He paid the debt of sin. So when He died there on the cross, He could forgive, wipe clean, make new and whole all of the creatures who had failed to obey Him, who had committed sin. Jesus took our place on the cross. But that's not where it stops. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you are called a child of the Father in heaven, right? That means that you get to take a place in the Father's kingdom. You realize how that works? Jesus took your place on the cross and you get to take his place as a son or a daughter of the king. Did you know that? Can you imagine just how great of a privilege that is to bear the name of the one true God? When Jesus died for us, he also gave us life. It's through his sacrifice on the cross that the way was opened to eternal life in heaven. Life with God forever, never to die again. Because here is the interesting thing about these resurrections, these people raising from the dead, one day all of these people would die again. They, they would go back to their tombs. But Jesus rose again, never to die again. The firstborn of the dead. These people coming awake here out of the ground are just the first fruits, just the glimpses of the glory of resurrection. One day, every single Christian who has died and their bodies have been buried, and their spirits have gone on to be with the Lord in heaven, when Jesus comes back to this earth, their bodies will raise up out of the ground and reunite with their spirits in the air, and we will always and forever be with the Lord. Through Jesus' sacrifice, we have access to life after death. But that's not all that happened that day. There in the city of Jerusalem, the veil of the curtain was torn in two. There in the outskirts, in the graveyards and the cemeteries, people were raised alive. But then something else happened there on the very hill where Jesus died. Verse 54. The centurion, the guy in, in charge of a Roman hundred, right? Century, hundred, you, you get it? He was meant to preside over this crucifixion scene of Jesus and these other thieves that were there with him. And so he was there, and there's some other Roman soldiers keeping guard over Jesus, and they witnessed the earthquake, and they saw the things that were happening. And they became frightened. They were scared. They saw the darkness come over the face of the earth. They witnessed Jesus forgiving this thief who had been mocking him on the cross next to him. They saw how Jesus forgave that man. They felt the earth tremble. They heard the rumbling. They saw the rock split. They saw Jesus breathe his last. 
And then something interesting happened. In all of this fright, they looked up with realization and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, in Mark's gospel, it's just the Roman centurion that utters these words. But here in Matthew's gospel, it's not only one Roman soldier. It's the whole lot of them. And I would just about guarantee you that this was not the first crucifixion scene that they had been a part of. Some people just don't like the talk or the sight of blood. You know what I'm talking about? They, just, they can't handle it. Stomach gets queasy. They start to faint. People like Steve Corder. They just don't do well with it. It's true, by the way. So when you start to talk about the goriness and the ugliness of crucifixion scenes, there's people that just want to avoid it. But then there's those, those, like those weird people. You know what I'm talking about? Like They could just watch surgeries for fun take place on TV. And then there's those really kind of ah, psychotic people. You know, they like to watch human suffering. I would imagine that in some ways, these Roman guards were either those psychotic people that enjoyed this kind of thing, or they had become you know, just so desensitized to the crucifixion scenes that it just, it's just kind of everyday life for them. But something happened that day that they had never witnessed before. They witnessed a man ask for the people that were crucifying him to be forgiven. They saw a man who had been mocked by another fellow next to him, crucified, actually forgiven. They heard him utter words like, It is finished! And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. They saw darkness come over the land at the point of Jesus' crucifixion and not go away until after it was over. An earthquake had occurred just as Jesus' life was ending. It was no coincidence. And they knew it. And it caused them to utter these words. Truly, this was the Son of God. Notice they didn't look up at Jesus' sign above his head and say, truly, this was the King of the Jews. They said, truly, this was the Son of God. They were admitting that this one that was hanging there on the cross was the divine being, God in human flesh, crucified there that day before their very eyes. And in their admittance, we could almost read this idea of, what have we done? Know what I'm saying? What I'm talking about? Wouldn't that have been a realization for you that day? Maybe you were one of the guys that when Jesus finally got up to the hill after being scourged, you had the privilege to knock Jesus down on his back so that you could finish putting the pole on the cross beam to erect the cross. Maybe you were one of the guys that got the privilege of extending Jesus' arms and virtually pulling them out of socket to drive the nails through his hands or his wrists. Or maybe you got the opportunity to drive the nail through his feet. Or maybe you were the one of the ones that before the crucifixion happened had taken the crown of thorns and matted it on his head and beat his head with a reed. Maybe you've been one that was spitting on him and jeering at him and making fun of him and mocking him. And all of a sudden, after Jesus has died, you realize, 
I just crucified God's son. That's a heavy burden to bear, is it not? But I think something interesting also happened at that point in time. You see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross for sins, he was dying for the sins of the world. For people like you and me, who would come thousands of years later, even after Jesus had died. For people long ago that had been dead and buried and were in tombs, and some of them coming back to wake that day. But also for people in that very day and time, including those who were there gathered around the cross. You see, when Jesus died, he was dying for the very people who also crucified him. And as I was thinking about having access to God through prayer and having access to life after death, I just couldn't pass this over. Because not only do we have access to God through prayer and access to life after death, we also have access to forgiveness by confession. Do you know that? In fact, as I was thinking about these guys standing there that day, this Roman cohort, I couldn't help but think, what could you possibly do that's worse than crucifying Jesus? No, I mean, I I really did. I stopped and and thought there at my office this week at the desk, there's a lot of bad things people do, right? Man, I don't know. There's a lot of bad things people do. Um, So, you know, I thought about this. I first trusted in Jesus when I was six years old. And I knew that I had lied to my mom and dad. And I knew I'd beat up my brother. And I knew that I'd said some bad things. But man, as I've gotten older, it seems like I realize just how much worse things we can do. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you look like you're about half asleep. So let me share some of these things with you. They'll, They'll wake you up. They might sound pretty rough, too. I'm just going to be honest with you. We grow up and mature, but the lies just grow, don't they? And the violence just spreads. And the ugly things that we say just get even nastier. And the thoughts that we have get dirtier. And the actions in which we partake get farther and farther from the life that God intended for us to have. You might think they're little or big things, but man, we, we've all sinned and made mistakes. And man, in fact, some of it's just hard to talk about. We, we don't like to mention people molesting little children, do we? Or spouses having affairs on someone that they've said to love and to cherish for the rest of their lives. Or people stealing thousands of dollars. Or people killing others. I don't like to think about those things. And in fact, when we stop and we think about the evil that's in human hearts, we go, man, what have we done? And we stop to think about the evil that's in our own hearts, we go, what have I done? And I think that there's a point 
we really step back and we look at ourselves and we look at the sin we've committed, we go, God, I don't know what you can do with this. God, I'm not worthy to be forgiven. God, I, how do, I can't ask you I'm sorry for that. You know what I've done? You know what I've said? You know what I've thought? You know what I've felt? Yeah. But when I stopped and I thought about it, man, out of all those laundry lists of things I just mentioned to you, I still couldn't think of anything worse than crucifying Jesus. And I go back to one of the very first things that Jesus cried out on the cross. You remember what it was? Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And man, when I think about that, even though the ugliness and the horror of sin causes me to reflect with sadness and fear and despair, the forgiveness of Jesus brings a genuine smile to my face and joy deep within my heart and my soul. Because no matter what, look, no matter what, Jesus loves you. He died for you and he is willing to forgive you. Just take that in for a moment. No matter what you've done. No matter what you have done. It doesn't matter if you've killed somebody or thought about killing somebody. It doesn't matter if you've cheated on a test or cheated on a wife. It doesn't matter if you've neglected all of your responsibilities or just failed to live up to your potential a few times here and there. Regardless of what you've done, you can be forgiven of it all because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And these guys came to admit it that day. They said truly this was the Son of God. There's another guy we talked about last week. He didn't say it that way. He, he said, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Later on, the apostle Paul would tell believers in the book of Romans chapter 10 that if you would believe in your heart, God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. The apostle John talked about confession like this in 1 John 1, 9. He said, if you will confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Understand this forgiveness by way of confession is not some magical incantation or a spell. There's no words that you have to say exactly the right way. It is a genuine admittance that you are a sinner. And a genuine admittance that God is God and He will save you. So whether you cried out like the thief on the cross, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, or you go the route that the Roman centurion and the soldiers did that day, truly this was the Son of God, or you prayed a prayer as a six-year-old in the living room with your parents, Jesus, I know that I've done wrong, and I know you're the only one can, who can forgive me, so will you forgive me of my sin? Or you're a teenager who, after one life, sits down with the youth chaperone and says, God, I don't know what all this means. All I know is that Jesus died for me and rose again. Will you forgive me and will you be the Lord of my life? He will forgive you every time. We have access to forgiveness by way of confession. And it's through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. You see, I love 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 that I quoted to you just a minute ago. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The only way God can forgive you is because of what Jesus has done for you. Did you know that? 
And here's a few words in that verse that you need to take hold of and you need to understand. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. Faithful means He will. He will do it every time. And just means He can. He is able to forgive sins. There is nothing, there is nothing that you have done, said, thought, or felt by way of evil, wickedness, and sin that Jesus is not willing and able to forgive you and cleanse you of. Did you know that? You have access to forgiveness by confession through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus' death has done for you and for me. Would you lay hold of those claims? Would you come to know and believe, if you haven't already, that you can pray to God, that you can be forgiven of your sins, and that, yes, you can have life after death? All because of what Jesus has done for you. Bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Just a moment, you're going to hear a song played as a hymn of invitation. And as the song is played, I just invite you to respond to God as He spoke into your heart this morning. Maybe you're here and you realize that you don't know God. You don't have a relationship with Him. I tell you today, the way is open for you to know Him. The way is open for you to talk to Him. All you got to do is cry out to Him in prayer. He'll give you life after death. If you will simply confess your sins and that Jesus Christ is the King, that He's the Lord, He'll give you new life. As this song is played, I'll be standing down here in the front if you need to come and speak with me. Maybe you have questions about something I talked about today. I'd be happy to speak with you. Maybe you don't need to talk to me. You need to talk to God and you just need to get up out of your pew and come and kneel at the steps of this altar and just... Speak to Him in prayer. Maybe even where you're seated in your pew this morning, you need to talk to Him or you need to continue listening to what He's saying to you. As God calls you this morning, would you come to Him?